boys will go to bed so early tonight Before exams they need a lot of rest They gotta make good for dad They gotta make good so bad They'll even pay someone to take that test Poison Ivy Poison that Ivy How can they flunk? They're so full of bunk Poison Ivy Welcome, Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And this is Alex Sokolow. And Alec, we have a guest today that is another survivor of the class of 81 of Trinity. You want to introduce Chris? or? Yeah, well, this is this is going to be a really fun hour for, for, for both of us. But for me, Chris was, was really one of my oldest friends on this planet. Uh, somebody that came through middle school, grade school, high school with, uh, stayed friends uh, uh, through college and then, and then afterwards. Um, and uh, and Chris has, has worn many hats and had many different chapters of his life. He's a journalist and he's a published author, right? Exactly. Uh, but also, uh, you know, currently in, in his latest manifestation, he's one of the preeminent college essay mentors in America. Uh, you know, as, as somebody who has both uh, applied for and gotten into universities and been rejected by universities and then see my own kids through that, uh, I can appreciate very well. Uh, you know, what, what a, uh, a minefield that may seem like uh, when you're on the outside looking in. Uh, Chris, uh, and he's a very uh, humble guy, uh, but like, you know, Chris uh, was able to somehow navigate that into getting accepted into Dartmouth at one point, the London School of Economics at one point, and Stanford Law School at one point. So he's got incredible bona fides. He, wa- he walks the walk, you're saying. He walks the walk, and and uh, we we had we, we had a lot of fun uh, memories uh, out here. Chris is currently in Boulder, uh, Colorado, which is his home base uh, for for some time now. You think of being a writer, and most people think that you're either like a playwright or a screenwriter, you're a journalist, or you're an author, and you can also just channel all of that into being, you know, I'm going to go all woohoo, but like to be a bodhisattva, where you're kind of leading other people into the realm of writing by either being a teacher or or um, or a mentor um, and a college essay mentor is just a fascinating. I mean, I guess I didn't even know that that really existed. Oh, I, I, yeah. And I, I, you know, we'll get when, when we invite Chris on, he'll he'll fill us in on, on all we got wrong in, during this segment. But um, <laughs> but I, I would say in many ways, he's kind of made his own uh, little niche uh, um, yeah. that, uh you know what? What is true is that uh, colleges, especially the "quote unquote" elite colleges, have become much more of a bottleneck for for applicants and and uh, for people trying to get get in and get that that experience or that stamp, and so that the uh, the the acceptance. Uh, sweepstakes have never really been higher. The risks have never been higher. Uh, but but going back to the writing thing, which is, I think, really uh, something I'm really excited to hear Chris's take on all this, is, you know, Chris was trained as a journalist, uh, you know, wrote for the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, in Asia uh, in the early uh, 90s, in The Economist. Uh, but really, yeah, he, he is helping people tell their stories. He's giving people right. the platforms and the structures and, you know, perhaps the, the wisdom of how to tell a story in a very competitive marketplace where there's no idea what a good story or bad story might look like when it comes to acceptance rates. And probably a, a very limited word count, kind of like a, a an article. To be read by people who I think uh, with the best of intentions uh, have huge, huge stacks, hundreds if not thousands of other stories to be reading. So how do you distinguish yourself, which is uh, fascinating. But more than just that, I mean, again, Chris, like I said, has worn many hats. I thought he was in the CIA in the early 90s, personally. You told me that all the time. You told me that I thought, all the time. <laughs> I still think it might be happening that he's just kind of lying, like born identity. He's a sleeper cell. Yeah, totally. But, totally. Well, you know, that could be true for but, any of us. But, you know, we're going to take a really quick break. And uh, you're listening to Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And this is Alex Sokolow. And we're going to be back with Chris Hunt, the premier college essay mentor in the country right after this. Serving eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, this is 88.3 WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio in Southampton, New York, Long Island's only NPR station. Your source for news, music, and entertainment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, I go guru down the street and young people gather around 
my feet and they ask me things, but I don't know where to start. So they ignite the powder trail straight to my father's heart. And yeah, once again, I call upon the author to explain. Yo, we call upon the author to explain. We're back. Sunday's on the East End, Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And Chris Hunt. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Thank you for having me. This is what we call an easy ask. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so where exactly are you, man? So I live, uh, having grown up in Manhattan and wanting my kids to grow up somewhere nice, I live in Boulder, Colorado with uh, the foothills of the Rockies just at the end of my street. And unfortunately, I live uh, about two minutes away from the King Supers Market, where that shooting happened the other day. Oh my God, oh, that's horrible! How, what, what is that like for you and your kids to know that that's part of your uh, regular, uh, you know, one of the little uh, stops you might make in any one day to, to see such horror and violence show up there? Well, at first there was clearly uh, the thought, like, "Holy cow, I could have been there." And then next there was sort of the anxiety of did we know anybody because a list didn't come out and then there's sort of this sense that you know we didn't know anybody but we could have and we're kind of all in it together so we drive by getting out of the neighborhood every day uh there's a huge memorial people putting stuff there and uh you know it it's hard to see but i certainly feel lucky that uh it wasn't my turn how old are your kids chris my son is 19 and a freshman in college, and my daughter is 17 and applying to college. Ah. Oh, so. and what, what's that like in your household? Uh, does she want to hear your advice? or is She, she wanted to hear it on the front yeah. end. She was, she was pretty receptive. She's a pretty uh, chill young girl, so she is also taking it all in stride, the good with the bad as the news arrives. Yeah, and so is she waiting uh, this week? Is she going to be hearing, uh, starting to hear from colleges? She is. She's heard some. She's got uh, more coming down the road um, on April 6th, which I think is Tuesday. Uh, the Ivy League schools announce their results, and uh, we'll see what happens. But what I tell her is whatever happens, you're going to have a great time in college and, uh, you know, points beyond. So approximately how many kids or you know have you have you worked with over the years helping them with their college essays mentoring it's not even approximate as of today i am on student number 378 wow that's that's a lot of kids um and, and, and how did how'd you get into this chris yeah. so it was uh an accident like both of you i applied to college there was a piece of paper and I took out a pen and, and wrote it, wrote my application. And the certainly the essay part was not really a big deal. So if you fast forward uh, to, I think it was about six or seven years ago, a friend of mine from college who lives here in Boulder, uh, we both went to Dartmouth, said, hey, can you help my kid with his essay for college? And I said, I don't know anything about that. And she says, well, come on, Chris, you were a journalist, you're a writer, I'm sure you can help. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. So I looked at what was being asked, which was say something personal, interesting, and compelling in a short space. Now, the personal statement for the common application is 650 words. And it reminded me of writing feature stories for the Wall Street Journal, which I did. So I thought, you know, I know um, some storytelling or narrative structures that will work very well in this space. So I gave it a shot. And how did it go for your, your first, uh, your first few students? So it, he seemed pretty happy. Uh, he went away and I was done. And then what happened was he told his friends at school, Hey, this guy, Chris helped me out a lot. And then his friends told their, told their moms, and their moms called my friend. It circled back to me, 
And since, of course, it was my friend, I, I helped her for free. So I said, well, I guess I got to charge these people. Yeah. And it was only when I searched online that I said, oh, wait, this is kind of a thing. <laughs> and and, and how, do, how do you create a price point for that, for your services? So I started out with, well, here's sort of what I want to get paid per hour. And I'm pretty new. I didn't really have an idea. So I looked around to see what people were charging. Um, and I thought, well, I'm new. I can't really charge that. So I, I started off at a certain price and then I thought that took a lot more work. So I increased it. Um, <laughs> over time, what I've done is I've um, not maxed out what the market would bear, but said, hey, I'm actually pretty good at this. So if I'm going to be one of the best people in this business, and by best I mean that my students get into the schools they want to go to, which tend to be Ivy League, Stanford, other elite schools, fairly consistency, fairly consistently. So I sort of look at what other people are charging, and I try to be at the middle or the bottom of that, because I'd rather have a bunch of work and a bunch of students at I can't say a reasonable price because it's all pretty insane. Yeah, and I, I was going to actually touch on that because obviously, we, you know, we're dealing with the big, one of the big words now is privilege. And, um, you know, there are kids who are underprivileged or underserved who may want to work with a mentor or need to work with a mentor as well. Um, so do you kind of get people from all walks of life trying to get in or is it a very particular type of person? Um, I have a mixed answer, one of which is, like you, I believe in um, sharing the wealth. So I'm, for example, connected with a local organization here in Colorado that helps um, low-income, high-potential students get in. And I work with all their kids for free. Right. And it's really cool to think I had the right thing at the right time to put them on a little bit different trajectory. Yeah. Right. Lovely. My uh, I actually one of the ways that I, I got a little bit of uh, national prominence, which helped me a lot, was a number of years ago, I came across a guy who was a middle class African-American kid from Ohio. You know, super bright kid. And he was writing onto some forum, um, hey, I'm a quadruplet. Do you think that would uh, be a good essay topic? Hell and yeah. I just engaged with him because I had the time. And I said to him, I said, you know, just being a quadruplet in and of itself is kind of cool, but I need to know how that's affected your experience, how you developed. So after a bit of back and forth, I said, you know what? I want to be a part of this. I will help you and your brothers all for free, oh right? And so that was really actually pretty interesting to see how, you know, four guys born on the same day um, all became very different. But what happened was they all got into Harvard and they all got into <laughs> Yale. And I was like, that's pretty cool. So then I put on my uh, former journalist hat and I said, hey, uh, you know, I don't know if you're into it, but I could maybe with the right kind of national publicity, it might be fun. So I ended up cold calling the New York Times and the Washington Post and NBC News, and they became sort of a, you know, briefly a minor national story, but have since all gone to Yale and they're graduating this year. But they, all, wait, they all chose the same college. They didn't split. They didn't divide and conquer. Well, there were three of them that went to Yale, which was more generous on the financial aid. And one of them uh, also got into Stanford. So it was going to be three on one. And they, I, I'm pretty friendly still with their dad. And he said there was a family meeting where mom started crying that the boys <laughs> weren't all going to be together. And basically, I think the three of them beat the outlier into submission and they all went to Yale. <laughs> bula bula. Exactly. But it's just awesome to see, because I'm still in touch with them, what, you know, look, they're bright guys. They would have all done fine, right? right. Different right. places. But by all being there and, you know, two of them have jobs on Wall Street next year. 
One is studying for the MCAT and the other one, you know, has a job lined up at Google. So they're all really using their education to make, to do a lot for themselves. Right. And that actually, that actually uh, brings up so many uh, thoughts in my head, but, but let's start with this, you know, uh, your interface is on is on the college essay, right. but your experience now, uh, 378 times, not counting your own kids and whomever else, is on the culture of college admissions, on the culture of the acceptance, the concept of acceptance. I know there was a huge, um, you know, scandalous uh, story uh, uh, with that guy Singer uh, out of California. Uh, and, and the elite getting their kids in through side doors and back doors. Uh, but, but you're dealing with basically kids who don't have that kind of privilege. Um, well, what, to be fair, okay, that's part of what I do. Most of my students are, come, I would break into two groups. I get a lot of um, first-generation Americans, mm. meaning ethnically Indian, Pakistani, Chinese, Koreans who came here have been either successful or very successful and want their kids that they highly value education um, and want their kids to go to these elite schools. Right. So probably somewhere between half and two thirds of my students uh, come from that group. So they're not, I wouldn't call them underprivileged, but they are certainly very ambitious in terms of they're not legacies uh, they're not legacies at the colleges exactly but the parents tend to be very practical some of them say english is not my first language right mm -hmm. i don't know how to do well at this game right. so they search google and uh, sometimes they come across my website college essay mentor and then i talk to them right but 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 chris like where, where i was kind of going in my circuitous way is uh, how is your philosophy on on the whole game changed in your in this latest form of your career? You know, uh, what does what does a good essay really mean in your opinion? And uh, in, in the context of board scores, which are in and out of favor, in the context of, of GPAs or achievement stuff or any of that stuff, and and then also, uh, what relationships have you been able to cultivate on the collegiate side? in those offices that, that you may be now seeing the same people again and again? Do you see their personalities in how they read? So I don't have any direct contact with uh, current admissions officers. I know a lot of former admissions officers and their talking to them, sharing their experience helps me understand the context of admissions better so I can help my students, right? I've certainly, over the past years, uh, seen increased competition and also understood how it works a lot better, right? And the, you know, the main message is, it is not a black and white meritocracy, and that's what gets frustrating for people, right? So in a college uh, admissions office, forms a class. There are lots of groups of people who have priority. So let's call that the priorities of the institution. The institutional priority is, okay, if I'm Stanford, I'm gonna have uh, a huge number of athletes for that program. So if they have a total of 900 across four classes, let's call that 225. So I've seen there's a set aside for those athletes, right. right? And I've worked with a good number of them and I see they get a big break, right? And in fact, that's where the singer thing came in is that the coach had the power to say yes, right? Within certain academic criteria. Right, and full disclosure, that's, that is how I got into the University of Pennsylvania. You know, I was recruited to play squash they had a special application. The squash program was allowed one student a year, and I was that student that year. So I don't think my board scores, my GPA, or anything in my high school academics would have merited acceptance, but I, I could hit a squash ball at that time. And I did play for four years there, so I don't, I don't think I, I, that was just the ruse to get in, but I get that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I believe that that was going on to some extent when we applied to college, but it's become a bigger and bigger deal, right? 
And you even get a lot of kids and parents structuring their lives around getting, being a sports recruit. Uh, you can be a sports recruit to a division one, you know, program in basketball and football, but there's little niche of Ivy league sports. Somehow the Ivy league is still a division one school. It's a, it's a great way to get an edge, but it's not the only way, right? There's another big set aside for first in your family to go to college. Really? That's a big yeah. thing now? Oh yeah. So I mean, I would want to guess at 15 to 20%. I know the president of Princeton a few years ago was on 60 Minutes and said, by year X, I want around 20% of my class to be first in the family to go to college with a specific goal of rebalancing uh, socioeconomics. Yeah, but, um, oh my gosh, who is the woman who just donated a huge amount of money? Um, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, right. Mackenzie Scott, right. donated an enormous amount of money to kind of like right the inequity of right. um, the, those kind of first generation. And again, I, using the overword, overused word of underserved, but the communities where, uh, where they are the first generation to go to college and to kind of level the playing field and we're back to playing fields. Yeah. And she seems to be, I can't remember, what is she giving away? A billion dollars a month? Uh, yeah. Something, something, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, but what I've understood more and more is actually how many groups, you know, legacies get a certain space. For what it's worth, I would say that legacy tends to be a tiebreaker. I've never worked with a legacy who was wildly underqualified. It's more like, so I wouldn't say legacy is kind of this dopey kid. It's like, all right, he's a bright kid and got in. But when you add all those up, what I've realized is only about half the spots are left available for, for fair competition, right? But even then, they're going to divide it up according to what state you're from. Like a lot of times parents will say to me, Chris, how do I get my kid into Harvard? I say, move to North Dakota. Right. Right. Because that's a very hard state and they want somebody from every state. Right. This year, I had an inquiry. I talked to a kid from Kazakhstan because mm -hmm. I end up getting kids from all over the world who find me. And I said, you know, they're going to want a kid from Kazakhstan. I like your chances. <laughs> right. You know? and what is that like for you, Chris, to kind of be you're not really the gatekeeper for these kids, but but in a way, people are coming to you as the expert, as the person that can help them, what does a win look like for you? I mean, a win means I think that somebody, a really high caliber, interesting student gets good options, right? Like I'll never say, hey, Yale, it's a done deal. I might say, you know, it's my, based on my experience, my little data set of 378 students, I think students like you will do pretty well if you pick this group, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's it. it it's, I, I like when good students get matched up with good schools. I really like when uh, a family feels that I played some role in helping their kid get to a good place. I wanted to talk about content, but if you still want the content of these essays and-, and yeah, uh, Up to you. Well, but if, if Alec wants no, to- No, 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 because we're, we're, I was kind of segueing the same thing, which is, you know, what's your philosophy when you meet a new kid and you decide to work with the kid? Like, what, how do you bring out their story that they want to tell, but they don't necessarily know how to tell? Right, well, so the first thing I do is I try to be honest with people about their prospects. Meaning, if you don't have the strongest grades, don't have the uh, the highest test scores, right? It, you know, I've got Bs and a, you know, 25 ACT, I need a great essay to get into Cornell. I'll say it won't work because you, you the foundation of your application will be your grades and your test scores. So it wouldn't be ethical for me to take your money and make you a promise. So in my old age- um, We're all um, the same age. You know, I, you know, I, I Pretty sure, Alec. I'm, I think I'm three weeks older than you. So I'm, you are. I'm still. I'm still. I'm still a spring chicken, dude. I, my old age isn't coming to like mid-April. <laughs> right. So I, I find a, 
I like to be honest, but above all, avoid conflict. So, but then the question is, for people with high grades and high test scores, the admissions office can't actually make a choice based on that because there are so many amazing kids and students in this country, okay? So Stanford publishes that they turn down 70% of kids with a perfect test score. Wow. So, but that's kind of encouraging. It means that's not what they're looking for. What they're looking for is who's gonna use my resources? Who's going to make my campus a little bit better, right? So that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So that's the sort of thing that I start talking to students about is it, and this may surprise you, I actually talk a lot and then I listen <laughs> to what they're about and what we can find that will differentiate and humanize them. Right. So that somebody who just has a bunch of paper or is looking at stuff on a computer screen can get a feel for who this person is. Right. So we actually probably talk for, I would say an average of three hours before anybody even writes a word just so the message is is right. right. Do you find that if they have something that's very individual about them, which might fall under the uh, heading of something along the lines of like affirmative action, like I have a trans son, do you try to work that into there? Or if they've had an eating disorder or if something, some obstacle they've overcome, I'm going really to the content. What do you think is the most eye-catching? And I know, like you said, it's not going to, if they have terrible you know, scores, it's not going to, but something that's really going to wow, or, or you know, that's, if they've had some tragedy they've overcome, or, or a, like I said, some, some disease or something that, that individualizes them, do you like them to focus on that for their essay? No. Okay. But I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because my starting point is that, you know, I've seen a lot of essays and admissions officers have seen a whole lot of essays. So it's pretty hard to come up with new, something new that you did or that happened to you. Okay. So I start rather with, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to me or the worst thing that ever happened or the activity and focus on your values and personal qualities. Right now, that will probably or almost always connect to activities. But by focusing on these core qualities, I think that we're more likely to connect to an admissions officer and their appreciation of human qualities. So Alec will know as a veteran screenwriter that he's always probably got a hero or a heroine in his story. And the story is about playing out the human qualities, right? Absolutely. And, and, and uh, in a way, it's like none of us are defined by what happens to us. We're defined by something inside that we can hopefully find authentically in our actions. Right, which is right. why I meant like uh, overcoming an obstacle of so and, and how you, man, like I guess um, how, what tools you have in your toolbox that enable you to deal with life. Exactly. You know, so what, you know, here's the challenge you faced. What did you bring to bear? How did you evolve? How were you tested? It doesn't even have to be all happy talk. It can be, you know, it can start out with, uh, to steal a Hollywood, to, the inciting incident. But the whole purpose of that is to trigger the qualities and your character. And I think that if you can work that into 650 words, which is not always easy, then someone doesn't know you perfectly, but they're starting to get a sense of what kind of person you are. And that will inform, okay, I think they'd be cool on my campus. Yeah, which kind of follows what you were saying uh, just previously about the, you know, the, the number of athletes or the number of legacies or the number of whatever first generation, which is uh, that the people that work in the admissions uh, departments at these colleges do have their own hero story, so to speak. They do have their own mission statement. And it is to create a, a, a campus life that is multifaceted and has a lot of nuance, a lot of new, like uniqueness to it, that it's not just homogenous. Yeah, exactly. So they're trying to create the most interesting mix. Right. So a lot of times people say, well, what do they want? If they just, just tell me what you want and I'll give it to you, right? Mm -hmm. And that's 
a pretty early conversation we have is that there's not one thing. So let's find the most compelling thing about you. And if it's true, it's not hard to find actual material in your life, right? If, if you think it's what someone wants to hear, and I, and I start saying, all right, well, how are we going to show that? What are some examples? If you've got nothing, that tells me it's going to be phony. And things that phony, they're easily recognized. They don't, they don't ring true. It's also just funny because, I mean, I, I hear you talking and I realize I mean, you're talking about 16, 17, 18-year-olds writing about life experiences. They're freaking babies. You know, they're like babies. Do you ever... Do you teach this? Do you teach writing classes as well? Because this sounds just like a skill set that everyone can use. I don't do much separate stuff, but I will say my favorite comments, either emails from kids or parents, or I have a lot of Google reviews. I really enjoy it when someone says, I learned a lot about writing that helped me through the rest of high school. And I even get college students say, I used a lot of the stuff that we used, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not my intention to be a writing teacher, but I sort of say, well, here's some things that I learned along the way. You know, a big thing is I really try to dial down the pressure on the first draft. You know, first of all, we write really specific outlines because then you're not looking at the scary blank piece of paper, right? <laughs> and then the first draft, I'll just say, I don't care about spelling. I don't care about length, just get it done. Yeah. You know, Alec will know, it's, it, that first draft can torture you. Oh, absolutely. And, and what I would actually say, and I don't know if it applies uh, to necessarily essay writing, but uh, for me, I always have a start and an end and it's the middle that keeps me up at night. And that there's so many doors that you can open up to get from the start to the end. And when you get that plumbing right, oh, it's, it's, it's magnificent. And I couldn't agree more. And you and I have had this talk before, Sock. Uh, you know, I mean, right now I'm editing a, a new glossy magazine and I, I'm writing like four or five articles. I don't stress about it because I know that if I get that first sentence, it's like laying pipe. It's like the whole thing. I just, I need a really good lead. When I have a really good lead, it just flows. And well, so yeah. see if this is helpful. I mean, in my own experience, writing books, writing articles, I mean, I've spent more time taking naps and drinking coffee to avoid <laughs> writing, right? So those are my core values, <laughs> right? But when I don't want people to get hung up on the first sentence. So I say, go to the first place where you feel you can be productive. If it's, you don't have to write the sec first sentence to get to the second or the third. So I usually like people to, to get it right, going. There's a lot of sculpting then, because it's kind of like, uh, I, I don't know if it's Michelangelo, but that thing of, of, you know, you look at the marble and you just take away everything that's not the figure, you know? It is Michelangelo, yeah. yeah. That's but, uh, Irving Stone. But one of the things that makes us pretty tough, both for high school students and for their parents, is if you go to an American high school, either public or private, and look, the, the missing third of my little who I work with framework is, you know, I work with a, a lot of students who go to high-end private schools. Right. I've had a bunch from Trinity. I had a bunch from the boarding schools in New England, Andover, Exeter, things like that. But you're taught analytical writing, five paragraph essays, right? Here is the highly structured thing where you're gonna do. Mm -hmm. And then someone says, okay, now you apply to college, just tell your story. Just is, it's crazy because this is something people spend their whole lives learning. Right. So they're, they're basically being asked to do something for which they have no preparation or practice. So it's that narrative structure, which again, I picked up working for the Asian Wall Street Journal that I teach first. I give them the tool they need to, uh, to win this game. We're going to take a break, I know, pretty soon, right, Bridge? Yeah, we are. Maybe well, let's take the break now. Uh, when we come back, I actually want to talk about your work as a journalist, if you don't mind. I would like to talk about the two books that, uh, that I know that you've written and, 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 and your journey as a writer, like your own process as a writer, uh, which I am forever interested in. Uh, so you are listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow. And we're going to be right back with our college essay mentor, journalist, and author, Chris Hunt, and, and Trinity survivor. Uh, we'll be right back after this.
This is John Landis, your host for the Jam Session Radio Hour on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Sunday nights at 8, bringing you the best in local live jazz. All recorded live right here at some great venues on the east end of Long Island. And please stay tuned to 88.3 WLIW-FM, also heard on WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess, meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. We're back. Sunday's on the East End. Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow with our guest, Christopher Hunt, man of mystery. All right, Chris, so let's get, let's cut, let's cut down to, to brass. Facts, okay. You're in the London School of Economics, right? This is like the uh, 80s. The Cold War is still raging. You've got the East and the West. And you send out like a group letter. Like this is before emails or whatever. A group letter, one page. Can't really explain, but I'm moving <laughs> to Hong Kong. I'll talk to you soon. Were you not in the CIA? I mean, they didn't really make me an offer that I couldn't refuse. So I, I went instead with uh, the journalist program. So from London School of Economics, I was bizarrely lucky. And my first job was uh, working in London for The Economist. Wow. So, that is now, okay. from across an ocean, it might seem um, a little arbitrary, maybe even a little fishy that I all of a sudden moved to Hong Kong. But if you were, if you'd been there with me, it would have made perfect sense. <laughs> okay, and you, you get to Hong Kong and, and you soon find yourself working for the Asian Wall Street Journal. Uh, that must have been such an adventure for you to kind of go out and be looking at all these emerging markets uh, during that period of time uh, and, and doing some reporting. I mean, Hong Kong in the late, late 1980s was, still a somewhat exotic place. It was still a British colony, right? Which actually made it an okay play to show, place to show up and look for work, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it was an incredible place to be in your late 20s and with a license to explore and ask questions. Where it turned kind of tragic is that um, in, uh, when Tiananmen Square happened, and then so by coincidence, good luck or bad luck, right before that, I was the, the banking reporter. So I was actually in Beijing when the student marches were happening. And I said, I'm not, you know, forget this banking thing for a day. I'm going to go be a part of history. So I went for you know, a few miles and walked with the students and then went back to Hong Kong. And then this whole tragedy at Tiananmen Square happened. And, you know, Hong Kong got pretty dark pretty quickly. Right. Uh, when Hong Kong people were afraid, holy cow, these people are going to be in charge of us in seven or eight years. And there was a lot of fear. And, you know, you're lucky to be a journalist to be there at that time trying to capture that for people to read about. Right. And, and I, I can kind of remember when, when you moved back from Hong Kong, you had talked about how you'd been there for about four years, I believe, and that you felt like if you didn't move back then, you were going to be a lifer. Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong itself was, uh, it was exciting, but it is kind of a treadmill. It's a very work-oriented place. You know, Saturday is a half day at the office. It's really urban. You don't feel a lot of sense of space or outside. So ultimately... Uh, in addition to thinking, I don't want to be in Hong Kong forever, I wasn't actually that crazy about uh, about being a journalist, so I wanted to try something else. 
and that led you to, to applying to law school? Well, as, as I don't know if you were around, I did have a, uh, a failed attempt at being a stand-up comic. Okay. I remember that. I remember the, the bit when you put, you put the condom on the microphone. It was one of your best gags. What? I don't know about that. That must have been another guy. I, I'm not sure who you're talking about. I have to take <laughs> okay. the fifth there. Okay. Seriously, what, where, where did you do stand-up comedy? Tell me everything. I don't remember this. In New York, I, I came back home and uh, my father was retired, but still living on the Upper West Side. So I hung out at his house. And at the time, Comedy Central was just getting going, and I watched those people, and I said, "I think I could do that." You do that, sure. But uh, I promise you this: way, way much tougher than it looks. And there's no, no worse feeling than standing on a stage with a spotlight on you, telling a joke, and there's dead silence. Unless you're Larry David, who that was his whole point. Let's go back to your dad briefly, because I completely spaced on this. Your dad was a journalist of some note, and you actually had a, you spent a part of your childhood in Lebanon, right? That's true. So my father, Richard Hunt, worked for uh, the New York Times for a long time, and then for NBC Nightly News. So when he was working for NBC News, he was, when I was a little boy, he and we had a little black and white TV set, uh, he was a correspondent in the Vietnam War. So I have memories of sitting in my parents' bedroom, watching the black and white TV thing with my dad standing there and soldiers running around behind wow, him. Wow, that must have been frightening in a way. I think I was too young to appreciate it. I'm sure my mom wasn't that happy. Although my dad, I asked him about it later, and his expression was that the second wave of the attack looks just as good as the first. So he wasn't there, you know, leading the charge. He was, you know, he just needed some soldiers I'll be right and some behind gunshots. you every step of the way. <laughs> there well, that you go. Into one of your books. I mean, sparring with Charlie. Uh, you you write about the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I mean, did you did you develop an interest because of your father being a correspondent? Do you think, or did that come later? Uh, it was it was independent of that. The thing I would say is that from being a kid, so we. During the Vietnam War, we moved to Singapore. As Alex said, we moved to Beirut. The thing that I was fortunate about is that I lived in an environment where it wasn't weird to go places. Right. So after a brief episode at Stanford Law School, I said, you know, I want to write thrillers. I just sort of looked around for what would be a cool thriller. And I thought, oh, what about modern day Vietnam? So, yeah. And that was 1991 or two-ish, right? Uh, let's see. I want to say 93, 94 in that time frame. Okay. So again, you know, Vietnam has become one of the great emerging, emerging economies uh, in the world. But back then, Vietnam was really a country that, that had not uh, had a McDonald's and Starbucks in every corner. No, when I, when I landed in Hanoi, there were no cars. It, there were just bicycles. There weren't even that many motorcycles. So when I saw a guy going by on this old Russian motorcycle, I said, oh, I want that. And so I like ran after him and it was <laughs> and uh, and eventually negotiated to buy it. But I was an oddity of a person on a motorcycle. You know, you look at it now and, and I haven't been back, but the place is clearly exploded. Yeah, tourist, right. tourist and and so again for for people, uh, it's it's a really wonderful read. It's kind of a travel log where, where you you rode down the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, from what what is Hanoi to to Saigon, uh, and uh, you kind of wrote about the people and the 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 culture, I guess, right? And the moment to moment. So my, if I were to you know say the, the the model for this kind of stuff, and I'm not nearly as successful, was actually Roger and me the Michael Moore documentary about trying to meet Roger Moore. Is that right? Not Roger Moore, that was James Bond. No, no, Roger, no, no, Smith. Roger, Roger Smith. Right. Roger Smith. There you go. Yeah. So my goal was to actually try to find the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Okay. Right? So I spent far more time failing than succeeding. Okay? But you know, I would say in writing is that a, a funny, interesting failure is far better to read about than a linear success. I see oh, that I, as far as life. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. Yeah. The book gets published, and and now you you know you have a little bit of a gonzo journalist. You're putting yourself into your narrative. 
Um, and you follow that up with, uh, uh, is it with Fidel? What was the book in Cuba? Waiting for Fidel. Waiting for Fidel. And, and uh, can you describe that one? Sure. So it's based on, in a way, a similar foundation, which is here's the Ho Chi Minh Trail that's been sort of the bogeyman of American history. What's it really like? What's Vietnam really like? Are they really the bad guys? So I was in New York when Fidel came to address the United Nations sometime in the mid 90s. And so it just occurred to me, well, that's kind of similar. Is he really, you know, that bad a guy? Is he all that we've been led to believe? You know, Chris, you're doing absolutely nothing to not convince Alec and I that you are still with the CIA. I, or, yeah. or, by the way, if I was an acceptance uh, officer to uh, allow you into my college. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue, continue about Fidel. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll give you a brief segue about pressure to get into college. So last year I worked with uh, a young guy who's the son of a mutual friend of ours who's American. But after high school, he went and joined the Israeli army and became a sniper. Okay. But he wanted to, you know, he's finished with that. He wants to go to Columbia General Studies. And I said, you know, I don't see how they turn you down. If you can hit somebody from a, you know, from a mile away, I, I think that's a very high stakes choice you make as an admissions officer. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that awesome. That's genius. All right. So, so you're looking at Fidel. So it, it was a similar idea. Like, so I had, I said, I wonder if I could meet this guy, what I would think. And it's, it wasn't that ludicrous a proposition because I knew three other people who had gone to visit Cuba and met him. Right. Right. So, but it's yeah. the same idea of by searching for someone, by trying to meet somebody, you actually gives a little bit of trajectory to my trip and a little narrative trajectory as well. So by trying to meet this guy and failing in new and interesting ways, I talk to a lot of people and learn about the country, right? So it becomes a story about what Cuba was like at this time, which was the, the mid nineties when they were just coming out of this very uh, tough time after the Soviets pulled out. It's really fascinating. I mean, if you look at your childhood, I mean, I only know you, of course, from high school, but but all the traveling that you did and then the traveling you did, you know, for work uh, as a journalist and going to Hong Kong and then the choices you made with the Ho Chi Minh Trail and, and Fidel, I mean, Cuba based, even though you were talking about New York. I mean, there, I, I kind of am seeing a pattern and then you kind of break the pattern by moving to Boulder, Colorado and helping others with their college, you know, essays. Do you see a, 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 a through line through all of that, Chris? I mean, in hindsight, right, you, you can connect the dots, but it was all more haphazard along the way. You know, something really interesting would come up and I'll say, I'll go for that. Right. So if... If there's a through line, it might be saying, that looks interesting. I'm going to give that a shot. Right. And, and I, what I'm hearing is, is, is literally we all tell our own stories in our lives, and you are telling your story through these experiences. Yeah. But look, I, I love the work I do now. I don't actually consider it a job. It's work, right? But I think it's, it's fun to talk to really bright kids and help them bring something uh, about themselves to life, you know, towards, towards a goal. Right. Um, I particularly like doing it in what I consider to be an ethical way. And people always say, well, why don't you, don't you just write it for them? And I say, I don't have to, because I can teach you to do it better than I could do it for right. you. And more importantly, you know, high school or college admissions officers, they know what really bright high school kids sound like. So I tell them, if you sound like a middle-aged guy called Chris Hunt, we both got a problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, and I want, I want to flip back to, to this one thing. Do you remember what your own college essay was about, what the topic was? I actually do. You probably don't. but So mine was about um, helping people uh, feel at home. And I remember during some trip uh, appreciating that a family that didn't speak any English and I was lost on a bus someplace helped me and then passing that on with 
somebody else. Which is, so, which is so poetically brilliant because that's exactly what you're doing now. Yeah, if I were to write a, my own college essay now, it would be probably about my value of helping people or nurture their own abilities to, you know, to be the best version of themselves, right? That doesn't guarantee you're going to go to Princeton, but we know that, you know, you've maxed out this part of it and the rest is uh, up to the admissions gods, right? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, Princeton, as somebody that went to UP, University of Pennsylvania, Princeton is really PU. <laughs> gotcha. Wow. Just, 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 not that I keep score. Yeah, I was going to say, hold on to that resentment, why don't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So, so Chris, like, this has been an extraordinary uh, conversation. Uh, you know, uh, it goes without saying that you know, I love you, man. And like uh, lives have taken us, uh, you know, we we're in different parts of the world at the moment, but uh, you are authentic, man. And you're authentically on your own journey. And, and um, I, uh, I kind of am always enriched when I see your name or hear your voice. Uh, so thank you for coming on. Well, I appreciate both the thoughts and for you guys both for having me. Oh, it's wonderful. And I've just loved hearing your story about all the different writing and mentoring that you engage in from journalism to uh, writing books and then jumping to being able to mentor others. And if people want to get in touch with Chris Hunt, his website is collegeessaymentor.com. And uh, Chris, has been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you. And Thanks so much. I hope it was uh, helpful to some of your listeners. I hope so. And this is the week. I mean, today is Easter. If you celebrate, it's time of rebirth and acceptance is coming in and the flowers are coming up. It's just a, a week of new beginnings. It's a good time of year. Yeah. It's a good time of year. And, and by the way, to anybody who, who has a, uh, a student waiting to hear or, or if you're a student yourself, uh, one of the, the, the big things to remember is that there's a reason why they call it graduation and then commencement. You're commencing to your next chapter and life is a journey uh, and that uh, the the college acceptance portion is just that it's just a portion to, to get you to the next place and if you don't fit in there you get to the next place if you don't fit in there you get to the next place you don't fit in there you could become john mccain's vice presidential choice <laughs> there you go so uh alec you want to take us out i mean you've kind of well yeah you know again uh, thank you chris thanks everybody for listening everybody have a happy easter love love your loved ones uh you know get your vaccines if you can wear, wear your masks we're, we are coming through a dark period in american history uh but uh, and world history but we are coming through it you know it, it, one of my takeaways from hearing chris uh, retell his story to me but tell a story is uh that that you got to go out in the world you got to go out and travel and and write your story in the life that you live in the effort to find your authentic self. So everybody be well and stay well. What would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you stay